You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined again uh, by Dr. Chris Murray. He's director of the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington, Seattle, uh, Washington, uh, where he's also chair of the Department of Health Metric Sciences. Chris, thanks so much for making time to be with us today. Oh, great to be back. So let's start with the United States and current forecast around COVID-19. Tell us your sightlines on this wave of BA5 and what may lie on the other side of that. First, let's just start with that. Sure. And, you know, I'll start with a, you know, it's a caveat or just almost a sad state that we're in, that we're actually, you know, two and a half years into the pandemic and having a harder time tracking what's happening than, let's say, a year ago. And the reason is twofold. First, really widespread use of rapid antigen tests at home. Everybody listening has probably done used them multiple times and very little reporting of positive rats to public health authorities. So in our language, the infection detection rate has nosedived. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing that we have these rats, but it means tracking what's happening is really hard. And on the flip side, the other thing that we tend to hang or, or used to hang our hat on was hospital admissions for COVID. But the problem now is that we have hospital admissions for COVID, but the way the rules work is if you show up at the hospital and everybody is automatically tested and you're positive for COVID, but you came in for a road traffic accident, you still show up in the hospital admissions for COVID. Same thing for a heart attack, same thing for your cancer treatment. So we're seeing what we call incidental hospital admissions go way up. And so these two opposite trends mean that the case numbers are super hard to interpret and the hospital numbers are exaggerated because they include people that are actually not particularly sick with COVID. So with all those factors in mind, uh, what it looks like is where, you know, the the BA5 uh, numbers are, you know, around about their peak and varies by state. We expect them to go down as they have in, you know, if you think of the early BA5 was in Portugal, well, South Africa first and then Portugal, those peaked after about five, six weeks and came down. We expect the same thing here. It's happened in many parts of Europe. But we expect as we head into the fall, more and more people's level of immunity, whether from, from vaccination at least, will be going progressively down. Protection from uh, infection-acquired immunity will also go down eight to 10 weeks after this BA5 uh, wave. So we should head into the late fall, early winter with a rising fraction of the population that can get infected. So even in the absence of a new variant, we should expect you know a return of COVID cases, but hopefully not a lot on the severe side because we factor in pretty widespread use of Paxlovid, which is you know, quite effective. So on balance, we'll have plenty of COVID around. We'll have this confusing pattern of seemingly lots of hospital admissions, and some jurisdictions will get very anxious about this, but that may be a false signal. But we don't expect a lot of death because of background immunity 
cumulative immunity and the use of Paxlovid. Now, new variant comes along, totally different story. Right. And that, of course, we don't know. And what does this uh, amount to in terms of baseline advice to individuals? Like when you're when you're trying to say, OK, think about your own behavior. What are you telling people? You know, I think until a new variant comes along, people should, you know, uh, if particularly they're an at-risk group, you know, over 50 or, you know, even a compromise in some way, they should keep their boosters up and then not particularly change behavior. I don't think it's really warranted given the level of risk we see in society. You know, we're just not probably not going to see a lot of death uh, that's truly due to COVID, some, but not a lot. And it's probably not the level of risk that warrants, you know, avoiding people or, you know, social distancing or mask wearing, at least until we see a new variant come along. And tell us what your thinking is in terms of the introduction of the next round of vaccines. Decisions have been made by the White House around the purchases of the bivalent. And what is that going to mean? as we head into the fall? You know, I think we've just been updating our systematic reviews of all the published studies about how vaccine efficacy holds up over time and how it holds up for Omicron versus prior variants. Since we're in Omicron, it's really the Omicron numbers that matter. And we all know that vaccine efficacy drops rather rapidly for Omicron. So, you know, 20 weeks in, we're down to a pretty low level. But we've been counting on vaccine efficacy for preventing severe disease and death has held up pretty well. Now we're starting to see some studies that show that even that will drop as you go out past 20 weeks. And so it does point out it's going to be very important to maintain immunity. And and the evidence is quite clear that boosters work to, to rebound on the immunity So that's going to turn out to be important as we go later into the year. Now, the booster numbers for people above above 50 are not good in the United States. No, they're not. And and I think what we're seeing is, you know, COVID fatigue at so many levels. People are just sort of done with it. And they're not seeing in their circle of their friends, their community, they're not like we were before knowing people who are hospitalized and severely ill. And so there's this sort of, I guess, complacency that's crept in. And I think that's okay, because right now we're not seeing a lot of death and disease, severe disease. But as immunity wanes, this will change, right? Uh, And so it, it will may take a shock to the system to get people to start paying attention again. Yeah, I mean, what I hear you saying is that in the intermediate future, stay as it goes. People should try to get boosted if they can, but there's, we know that there's complacency and resistance to that. But if the science that's accumulating now about the drop-off of protection proves to be as strong as perhaps it is, then we could be seeing, as we get deeper into the fall, we could be seeing uh, an increased vulnerability where the absence of the boosters becomes very problematic for people. It does. And, you know, this is uh, back to a little bit my pet peeve right now, which is it does not take a lot of action by government to request that hospitals report admissions due to COVID, not just with COVID. 
because we're going to have a very hard time convincing people that, you know, that immunity is dropping at the population level and, and we're going back into a wave, if it comes, of increased death due to COVID if we have these murky numbers that we currently have, which are conflated by you know, incidental admissions. And, you know, there's some reports by single hospitals. So, I mean, I think there was a, the, the USC hospital reported that 90% of their COVID admissions were incidentals, but we, we don't know. And, and it would be easy enough to request that because hospitals do know. And so that seems like we're, we're flying blind heading into the fall on this critical question, is severe disease on the uptake or not? You know, there was this White House summit last week on future vaccines, which was quite interesting. I mean, the, the message that I think that Ashish Shah and others were attempting to rally people around, and there seemed to be something of a consensus in the room, that we just can't continue on the course that we're on right now in terms of current boosting. We need to step back for a moment and ask ourselves, how are we going to get into a broader and greater durability of vaccines so that we have uh, more of a pan virus protection and a longer and more durable form of protection. And, and of course, that's not going to be easy, but trying to tease out what are the scientific gaps and what should be the five or six priority steps in making an investment case for moving the country in that direction. Tell me what your thoughts are on that. You know, there's two directions on this, and I think both warrant work. Absolutely. You know, the idea that we're going to need to be vaccinated every six months forever, and we don't have any idea of the long-term consequences of that. Right. And the returns are diminishing, right? Well, that's not as clear, right? So far, it's, you know, what studies we've seen suggest that, you know, you bounce back up, it just doesn't last very long. In the absence of, of the, the basic science and, and the immunology working, that's maybe where we're stuck. But boy, we should be investing in trying to find vaccines that have more diverse epitopes that are being tackled by the immune system. The other direction, again, there's work out there that's underway, but it, it didn't get a lot of focus, is can we actually have an infection blocking vaccine? You know, we don't have blocking vaccines. Uh, they were sold to the public as if they were, not by ill intent, but sort of misinterpreting the trials, which were about disease and, and death and not about blocking infection. They weren't designed to test that. There was one small arm of AstraZeneca that did in, in some way. But uh, there are these companies and other groups looking into sort of intranasal vaccines that might block infections. It's another direction that's worth trying. Because if we could go back to having something that stopped transmission that does bring us back to a strategy that you might actually get rid of COVID, uh, which we're not on that trajectory right now, for sure. So the problem that it seemed to me emerged out of the summit, I thought the summit was very, very good at bringing forward this reality that we need to block infections, we need greater diversity of of coverage and we need longer protection, longer lasting protection. And how are we going to get there? But it's an expensive thing. It's really, it really amounts to saying we need another Operation Warp Speed style mobilization. And the perceived threat is grossly diminished. And the, the finance, we're now in a predicament in terms of trying to have 
predictable and reliable, adequate funding for the COVID response and plus building for the future. So it becomes very problematic. And in some respects, I think what the White House summit was trying to do was to socialize these concepts, right? About this is where we are and this is where we need to go without putting a price tag on it, but just trying to sort of market the concept and get it out into the into the atmosphere. But it's going to be tough right now and in the, in the future to sort of keep the focus on what we need versus kind of muddling through. And that's where I think we're entering now as a phase of muddling through in some of this. I strongly fear that you're right. We will not see the big investment that we should on the longer term vaccine front. We will muddle through the countries occupied by lots of other challenges, the midterms, um, you know, the other issues that are out there. And hopefully we won't get some big shock of a big rise of severe disease in the winter. But if we do, then suddenly people will be back to saying we should have invested more. But Right. Well, that's sort of the, in the nature of this particular game here. You've been vocal about the need to think about Paxlovid in much more serious terms as part of a global strategy. We have a work, working group within our Commission on Therapies that's made similar arguments. Say more about that. Why are you such a ardent advocate for making Paxlovid a much bigger element of a global strategy? Why is that so important? Well, we have one trial. And it's a doozy, right? Admittedly, the trial was in unvaccinated, never infected. So these are immunologically naive. And you had this drug with 90% effectiveness, which is just extraordinary. So we're sort of hoping that that applies in the partially immune, the margin that we are, you know, going to see that 90% benefit, even if you have some partial immunity. Interestingly, in the U.S., uh, we've dug into the numbers, you know, about half of the reported cases, which is a small fraction of the total infections, but half of the reported cases do get Paxlovid. So it's quite widely used and probably having a very considerable benefit. And, you know, we will hope that people like the Israelis or others that have really good observational data will be able to tell us at some point whether the 90% number is holding up in, in matched cases. Uh, we're not seeing resistance. And-, or, and we're not seeing resistance emerge. But so far, so good. We're, we're certainly, lo- seems like it's having an impact. And the great advantage of Paxlovid is uh, we don't have the vaccine hesitancy problem. We don't have the issue that, you know, we're basically maxed out on vaccination globally. There's very, very few people in the world who want to be vaccinated that are not vaccinated. And on top of which, you know, you don't have this sort of uh, waning of efficacy issue. You're just targeting the therapy to those who are sick. Now, of course, it should be part of a package. But uh, the third, the last reason that Paxlovid may be a very important part of uh, the strategy in the coming months or years is we hope because of the mechanism of action that it will be as effective against new variants that are selected for by all these partially immune people for immune escape, but it's not any particular reason they're going to be selecting for variants that are going to you know avoid the mechanism of action for Paxlovid. So it should work, we hope, 
And, you know, getting people access to it could be a real game changer in places where, let's say, a nasty variant comes along and we're ill-prepared. So if it turns out that Paxlovid is, in fact, quite effective against the next subvariants that we face, and what, you, what you're saying is holds up in terms of we need a pivot, a strategic pivot in our thinking towards Paxlovid as a lead element of a response globally in this next period, that has some pretty deep implications. I mean, it, it, it means that there needs to be a mechanism for doing this. It needs to be production capacitation of a massive uh, scale that doesn't exist at the moment. It needs to be paired with a very substantial expansion of testing in this same period and a shift of thinking. I mean, we hooked so much of our thinking around vaccines, and some of that thinking is still very deeply embedded and deeply embraced, right? Say a bit more about how that change can be managed. Yeah, I, I, I think we need a, a, a pivot because I think a lot of the policy or some of the policy discussion is still about last year's issue, which was getting vaccines to those who wanted them, who could not access them. That is no longer the case. Uh, vaccines turn out to, you know, once you've been infected once or twice at the margin, have a much smaller effect than they did when you hadn't been infected at all. So the the, the benefits potential is, is smaller now. And yet on the, the Paxlovid side, that's not the case. Now, the challenge on Paxlovid is, you know, the, the delivery mechanism, just that we're, it's sort of back to antiretrovirals for HIV. It's a simpler task. It's five days. It's not for life. But it's similar in how to like get the drug to the right person in a low middle income setting in a timely way. It's there, it's available. And so there's a, lots of issues, lots of lessons to be learned from, from uh, PEPFAR and, and similar efforts. Now, the challenge on Paxlovid is apparently it's a difficult drug to manufacture. And so there's quite a lot of work to be done to bring down not the IP part, because that's, you know, uh, they're foregoing the cost of the, the value of the IP part for low and middle income countries or for a certain set of countries. It's really the cost of production that needs to be brought down because it's still, if you talk to the Chinese, why are they not doing much with Paxlovid? It's too costly, even without paying for IP. Which gets me to the next subject, which is China. You've been very vocal on zero COVID. We are seeing more and more signs recently that, in fact, the Chinese are not just dug in for the next six months. They're likely dug in for a much longer period of time. Some of the more recent writing on this and the reading of the tea leaves is suggesting that for a variety of reasons, it's likely that President Xi is going to extend the zero COVID approach well into 2023 and perhaps beyond that, which is kind of a startling thing. And we just as an aside, with all of the drama surrounding Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taipei this week and the military actions, but also the Chinese announcing that they were suspending cooperation uh, with the United States uh, across a whole spectrum of issues, including climate change, crime and, and defense matters, health was not on that list of areas to be excluded, which says something, I believe, about the desire to get back into some level of cooperation and dialogue around health, which is encouraging. We'll see. We'll see. That's just reading tea leaves. 
But back to zero COVID, okay, it may be longer term, who knows, but some of the folks that are watching it closely have shifted their opinion of late. But what I don't see is any action, any, any hustle to complete the vaccination and boosting of the elderly who are profoundly vulnerable, who have almost no protection. I see no accelerated action on getting mRNA brought forward, nor to take the Chinese vaccines and push for, you know, double, double boosting or even initial boosting at a mass scale at the levels required to, to get to a higher level of protection where a reopening might be possible. Antivirals, as you point out, they've chosen not to go with Paxlovid. The offers were there on the table. Production problems are there. The cost problems are there. But when you look at that and you wonder, well, okay, but what's the price? What's the cost of not doing this? And I don't think there's evidence that they're fixing the system problems in terms of vastly inadequate numbers of ICU beds and basic nursing capacity when they are very afraid that if they reopen and stumble, they'll be like Hong Kong and there'll be a million dead and their system will be overrun and they won't have the capacity to manage those. What is your read of what's going on in China? You know, I my only possible interpretation of what I think your your synopsis is pretty accurate from what I understand is that there are other reasons that the government actually is happy to pursue a zero COVID strategy. Uh, otherwise, you know, that you would see action. You, you listed out all the possibilities. They're doing none of them that we know of. And the fact that they're not, and they are also quite aware of the economic costs of this, says that they're, this is part of some broader geopolitical strategy, is my interpretation. Now, is this all, you know, public discourse prior to Xi Jinping's election for a third term. Things change rapidly after that. I think that's still a distinct possibility. But, you know, I'm, I'm, there are people that are much more savvy about the higher level political discourse in China than I am. But, you know, you've got to figure that this is not just a calculus based on health. Uh, there has to be some other set of issues that are at play. Right. Well, it does align with the agenda of tightening control. It does align with the agenda of the compact with the citizenry of China, which was after the stumble around Wuhan, there was the, you know, the claim that we will, this will not have, there will not be another massive stumble of this kind. On the offset, yeah, they're suffering economically. They're taking some pretty concerted measures to stimulate investment in infrastructure, to stimulate Developments in a very fraught property uh, sector, the development of both commercial and residential property. They're moving to a loop style of manufacturing where they're putting their closed loop, they're putting their workforce in many of the key industries into these closed loop uh, residential systems and that sort of thing. And, and it may align with a, a view that China should become more self-reliant and a little bit less interdependent globally on the economic front. And so, yeah, there could be zero COVID could be aligning with other geostrategic objectives, both internal and external, but it's not been articulated that way, but it could be. You know, there's one other factor there that is in the background, and I, I don't know how zero COVID plays into it, but I know it's occupying lots of focus from the government, which is, you know, the population of China peaked 
probably hit their peak this year, and they start to decline. Now, countries with declining populations get very worried about all sorts of factors. And, you know, there's economic factors, there's housing market factors, and housing is a big part of the Chinese economy. You know, there's all these other issues that China is going to have to tackle. That's a pretty huge one. And I think they're very aware of it. And I don't know how that makes them think differently about strategies. Let's shift to back to the question around how do you get attention back upon, how do you get high level attention back upon the COVID agenda? I mean, here we are, we know that attention's fallen off through this kind of cycle of crisis complacency, the wall of immunity, the advent, the threat bring brought down, the change in the virus, the change in hospitalizations, those factors. But we also know that all sorts of other multiple crises have gained currency and dominance, right? The threat of recession, global inflation, you know, Ukraine is driving food insecurity, soaring energy costs, raising the debt load in low and middle income countries. China, Taiwan is, you know, creating other, other factors. So we're in a period where the COVID agenda is getting put in the back seat against multiple unfolding crises. And then, of course, in the United States, we've got our own political polarization that further complicates this and is, and is contributing to the kind of multiple failures to get predictable and reliable funding. We may have some fixes in the budget process, one hopes. It's not without hope at this moment. But what is your thinking on the macro level on how to reposition this agenda in the midst of this? Because it's becoming rapidly very much more difficult. So I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about this. And I think you have to tackle the multiplicity of threats head on. And the way I would like, and I'm actually trying to see if we can make this happen, is to try to create a some sort of process, dialogue, commission, if you will, that's saying, what are the big threats for the next generation? Let's put them all on the table and let's see if we can get some numbers around them so that we can get things in context and not go from you know, bouncing from one thing to another because it's in the media cycle and try to sort of frame like, you know, in context, you know, how big is uh, food insecurity? How big is the issue around antimicrobial resistance? How big is pandemics? How big is the threat of climate change? How big is the threat of, of, you know, obesity and diet? All the things that somewhere out in the community, there's a constituency saying, you know, this is our big issue. And if we could do that in a sensible way, and create the right sort of policy dialogue about that with some people who are, let's say, you know, either current or past political leaders, as well as on the technical front, maybe you have a a route into a a coherent strategy to deal with a a multiplicity of threats. Thank you. Let's close with a few words on the monkeypox outbreak. This has been a busy week. Last week was a busy week. This week we had you know, public health emergency declared here in the United States after several states and major cities had taken that step. And after, after Dr. Tedros, two weeks out tomorrow, had made this, the, the declaration from the WHO side, uh, we've had two Fenton and Daskalaxis appointed as from a combination of senior FEMA, senior CDC 
uh, leadership ranks to coordinate the response. We've got some expanded efforts on purchase of vaccine, some efforts at accelerating the therapies and tests. But we're still looking at guys. So things got off to a tough start in the first couple of months. And there's a lot of uncertainty about whether this becomes endemic and how quickly does the tide turn or how quickly does it broaden and widen out within society and become endemic. And uh, there's still some big gaps in terms of the critical needs, particularly around vaccines. What are your reflections on this? What does this experience, this body of experience up to now in the last few months? We had our first case, May 18th, in the United States. So we're now early August. What are your reflections on what this tells us? So I think there's two, two things here. One is like, how do we think about these emerging threats like monkeypox? And then secondly, what is the sort of slow response from the public health community? Tell us about what lessons learned from COVID, which seem like we haven't sped up the response. But first on the first one, you know, my way of thinking about this is on, on a threat that comes out. And of course, it's fraught with all the challenges of, of getting the right sort of prognostications. But, you know, is this threat, could it kill 100 million people? Which, you know, a new version of Spanish flu could certainly do that. Is it in the tens of million a la COVID? Is it a million? Is it 100,000? Is it 10,000? Is it 1,000? And, you know, realistically, monkeypox at the global level is in the 1,000 death potential, probably, from what we know. So it is five orders of magnitude smaller than a new flu pandemic, right? So we just got to start with, is this a really scary thing? And the answer is no. It is a bad thing, and we don't want it to become endemic, and it, you know, it has uh, effects, you know, 10 people have died, and so, you know, we shouldn't discount any threat. And it has a, a bigger non-fatal effect, because, you know, it's pretty nasty, and even if it doesn't kill you. Uh, so obviously there should be a response. But, you know, the people around me, including our some of our own employees, are really struggling to manage magnitude of threat. And so it's just important to start with, this is not COVID, right? This is not another COVID, not even a thousandth of a COVID. So th that's one thing. The second thing is it's, you know, it's pretty depressing that having come out of a pandemic or still in the middle of a pandemic, the way in which the cost of action and the cost of inaction is being balanced, which is how we got into trouble with COVID in the first place, I don't think we've solved that problem, right? If you look at monkeypox, I just think there's such a fundamental institutional problem here that we don't have the right mechanism to critically evaluate, you know, is this a class one through 10 threat? Is this, you know, what sort of action is required? What sort of things are low cost for us to do quickly versus, you know, higher costs that requires more time and data. So it, it, I, I find it quite depressing that we don't seem to be learning. Thank you. You know, we end each one of these by asking, you've been through this drill a few times, we ask each one of our guests to close on an optimistic note. We ask you in this context, at this current moment, you know, what gives you the greatest hope? What gives you the greatest optimism looking ahead? I know you're a fundamentally an optimist. I know that. <laughs> I am an optimist. Um, gives me greatest hope. Uh, you know, I still believe that there is a 
awful degree, you know, despite the geopolitical tension and the polarization in the U.S. and the, the, the war in Ukraine and potential tensions with China, I think there is a degree of scientific cooperation right now that has come out of COVID that is still very strong and vibrant. And I think that's, there's real you know, reason for optimism about that. I think people sort of see the big picture and understand what's a big thing. And a lot of these things like COVID are big things and require you know, people working together. So I, I remain pretty upbeat on that direction of, of travel and that we'll see benefits that come out of that. The other thing that you know, makes you ask the question, are we on the cusp of an extraordinary acceleration of some aspects of the science around immunology, as well as, you know, the development of therapeutics? And what I have in mind is the deep mind, you know, protein shape results that came out that they can now tell us this, what took, would have taken years and years and years of research. And so are we suddenly starting to see the benefits uh, starting to emerge of some of these new technologies in terms of insight? And that could finally, you know, several decades on from uh, the original uh, promises mean that we will enter a period of accelerated innovation. For our listeners, Chris, explain a little bit more clearly for a layperson what you mean by the these the the new acquisition of knowledge and and what and the new technology so previously you know we we we've sequenced the human genome uh, and so we know there are all these you know sequences that encode proteins other things and it took ye- literally years of work to figure out what the shape of that protein was and therefore how it bound with other things in the body and therefore, what might its function be? And then if it does something that we want to intervene on, what would be the shape of something else that would have to you know, relate to that protein? Now, in, in something that I think is just flabbergasting, you know, DeepMind put out that they have developed an uh, AI algorithm that can correctly or reasonably accurately predict the shape of all proteins, just from the gene sequence, which should be an example of this just sort of uh, leapfrog acceleration of of knowledge that could then fuel uh, innovation. And, you know, you go back to 2002, three, four, there was a tremendous optimism about the human genome, and, and this would lead to cures for cancer. They haven't emerged yet. But maybe we're finally, the combination of sequencing and machine learning, maybe we're entering a phase where we'll see accelerated innovation. I, I hold out some hope that that, that is the case, that you know, these are really unprecedented developments that I would not have imagined that were possible. Chris, thank you so much. This has just been a wonderful conversation as usual. And we're really grateful that you're taking time out of your Friday afternoon to be with us. Thank you very much. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Laurel Vibazon and managed by Claire Dannenbaum. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet, an AIDS existential moment on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.